Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk Portland, Intercom Radio Portland's weekly public affairs program. I'm Gary Bloxham with a question. What if you could change the course of someone's life? Well, you can. Let's talk about it. On the show this time, I would like to welcome Morgan Moore. Morgan is a restorative justice practitioner and restorative dialogue coordinator at Lutheran Community Services Northwest. Hey there, Morgan. How's it going? It's going well, Gary. Thanks. So I guess we probably should get started today uh, letting everybody know what is restorative justice. If you've never heard of it, tell us, tell us all about it. So I like the definition from the Center for Justice and Reconciliation. It says restorative justice is a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. It is best accomplished through cooperative processes that allow all willing stakeholders to meet, although other approaches are available when that is impossible. So what that means is um, it's an opportunity for victims to speak face-to-face when you can be face-to-face with those who cause them harm um, in order to find what everybody needs to heal the harm to the best extent possible and move forward. That's super interesting. Is this kind of like a new practice? Not Really, it's um, been around since the 70s, and many of the tools used in restorative justice are actually um, um, borrowed from indigenous populations, such as circles and um, using talking sticks, for example. Wow, that's super interesting. So there's quite a bit of history with it. There is, yeah. How successful is restorative justice? That's a good question. It's, <laughs> Probably a $10,000 know, question, right? It is. It's challenging. We're working on um, finding the best ways possible to gather the data from the process because it is confidential. But um, we do. We have seen that uh, recidivism uh, is, is less likely when people, especially youth, go through the restorative process. Um, and in my experience of doing it, I've been practicing for almost 20 years. I've seen only positive results from parties who have participated all the way through. Wow, okay. So is restorative justice mainly for youth or for adults or for, or for who? I would say there's probably more programs um, with the youth justice system, but the Oregon Department of Corrections does have an adult severe and violent crime dialogue program as well. Um, 
But Clackamas County, Washington County, there are youth programs in Eugene and Ashland and throughout Oregon. Okay. So it sounds like, yeah, I could see a restorative justice being a good thing for kids because, or for youth anyway, because it kind of um, allows them to talk about it and see the impact of, of what they've done. Absolutely. And they being able to talk specific, directly to the person, you know, who they caused the harm to. And with the youth, so many of these cases are, are not just black and white. It's not people like bullying, for example, right, where... Um, both both parties have a sense of responsibility for harm being caused, but somebody got caught. <laughs> and so it helps the youth be able to talk through those things and take accountability for the harm they caused and also take responsibility or, you know, be able to see how it was a they were both responsible in some ways. Okay, explain that a little bit more. How are how is somebody being bullied responsible? The victim. So what we yeah, one thing we see kind of a lot of actually is um like Snapchat, which I think is evil. <laughs> um, <laughs> kids are bullying each other on Snapchat and say the one who is the target of the bullying has reached out to parents or teachers or um other support systems to try and get help to make the bullying stop, but it doesn't. And then they get just pushed one more time too hard and they lash out and hit the person who is bullying them, for example, and then charges are filed on them. But before that, prior to that, they had been trying to do the best they could to resolve the issue on their own and it, it failed. So then they protect themselves and become the youth offender. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Uh, are there particular levels of crime where restorative justice um, is most appropriate? Like bullying all the way up to murder? We, I'm, well, I haven't seen that in the youth program. I've certainly, in the adult program where I volunteer, that is common. But I, I think it's really a matter of... Um, the person who caused the harm really being able to take accountability, right? If they're really, really willing to take responsibility genuinely and the victim is really prepared to accept, well, to hear that, to listen to them um, and see how that feels, then I think it is useful in all types of crime, even what is sometimes called victimless crimes like graffiti or damaging TriMet bus stops, for example. Okay. So how do you get to the point where the person who, who committed the crime is willing to, to talk about it and, and do restorative justice? How do, you, how do you counsel that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just change that language a little bit. Since we aren't licensed counselors, I want to make that clear. Okay. Um, our program uses volunteers from the community who are trained in a restorative justice facilitation process. And, and so what we do with the parties independently before they talk to each other is just be very direct in our questioning, right? Like really hash out what led them to the place of causing that harm. And even if they have, even if they feel, even if a youth offender feels victimized a little bit as well, really trying to find the way through conversation 
where they can take accountability for the action that they did do that caused harm while still owning that maybe they were pushed to the brink. Um, and with the victim, not, let's say an example, not of bullying where the victim was assaulted. It's a matter of helping them, helping them really figure out what they need to help the, to repair the harm that was caused to them. That could be um, financial restitution for hospital bills or, or damage to property. It could be getting questions from the offender that only, or getting questions answered from the offender that they, they're the only ones that know the answer to. And oftentimes in the juvenile system, if the adult is a victim, um, they want to help the youth make better choices. And so a big part for adult victims and youth offenders can be helping the youth find a better path. Kind of a, like a good teaching moment. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the, what's the, what does the victim get out of this? Besides, like you say, if, if it's an adult, an adult and a, and a, a youth, uh, that is, that makes sense, but yeah. explain it further. Well, I think for one, victims get a chance to be heard, right? In the, in a traditional courtroom setting, even though a victim can make a crime victim impact statement, it's, it's a courtroom setting. It's, there's a lot of power dynamic at play. They generally are looking at the back of the offender and, and it's just, it's an, it's a nervous place to be, right? So a victim gets an opportunity to see the youth offender as a human to talk to them and kind of learn about what, what else is going on in their life that led them to this place and gets to look them in the eye and hear them take accountability and responsibility for their actions. And honestly, um, they can together talk about finding ways to repair that harm. And sometimes if that happens before a court case occurs, the victim can have a very real impact on what the youth does for reparations. Wow. And what does that involve? Like the, like the punishment, like, basically, is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, but we like to think of it as not punishment, but as restoring harm or repairing harm through, restor- through restorative um, engagement. So I've seen things like, uh, let's say a victim's fence was graffitied on. Um, they could talk about having the youth clean up the graffiti or participating in a cleanup program of the victim's choice. One of the things victims like to do sometimes is prevent kids from um, working on the, like the juvenile department has community service programs, but then you're putting youth in with other youth who have engaged in criminal behavior and that has a tendency to encourage further criminal behavior. So by way of keeping them out of the juvenile justice programs and maybe coming up with a, a different way to volunteer their service, to repair the harm keeps them a little bit safer from making more connections with juvenile delinquents. Okay. That makes sense. We're talking today with Morgan Moore, restorative justice practitioner and restorative dialogue coordinator at Lutheran community services, Northwest. So Morgan, tell me a little bit more about Lutheran community services, Northwest. What, what, what is that organization? 
Lutheran Community Services Northwest is an agency that serves, um, we have a refugee program, so we have um, mental health staff and legal staff that help um, individuals coming into our country find homes and jobs and mental health services. We have the Crime Victim Advocacy Program, which you interviewed a couple weeks ago, which is a free service, um, community-based crime victim advocacy for anyone who has been a victim of crime, whether that's been reported or not. Um, and they, we have the Restorative Dialogue Program, which is my program, and we partner with Multnomah County Juvenile Department, and that is where we get our referrals through the juvenile services. Okay. Well, tell me more about the Restorative Dialogue Program then. Yeah, so the Restorative Dialogue Program, like I said, partners with the Juvenile Department. And so when a youth gets, and we used to up until recently, um, receive referrals from school resource officers as well. But that partnership has been, um, that partnership is changing, obviously, due to uh, current protests and um, conversations about defunding the police. So our referrals are coming in now from either a judge, a juvenile court counselor, or possibly directly from a victim who would have learned about the program from a um, district attorney victim advocate, which is a system-based victim advocate. And when, when that referral comes in, I reach out to the youth offender and their family and the victim and their family, and I tell them more about the program and see if they want to participate in it. For the youth, if it's referred to me, we ask that they have at least that in, an initial meeting with me. But after that, it's entirely voluntary for anybody else to participate. So should a youth and a victim have that initial meeting, they could decide they don't want to move forward to dialogue for various reasons. Um, that could be the first meeting was enough for them. They don't feel like it's the right program for them or they just changed their mind. And if everybody feels good about it, then we can go forward and have a dialogue with everybody involved. It seems like talking about it and, and doing this restorative justice for the youth is only a positive. Are there negative aspects to it? Well, I think what the, the things that can be negative are that it's, it's time-consuming and challenging. And often when youth are involved in the criminal justice system, they have a lot of other responsibilities they've been asked to take part in as well. So that sometimes feels like a negative impact on the youth. Um, when we could meet face-to-face, there was tra- there's transportation issues sometimes. People have large families with multiple, you know, younger children that they have to find childcare for to bring their, their youth in to meet. But the process itself is in- incredibly impactful, and I have seen it be really helpful even if it's just that initial meeting for families to be able to talk to each other about what happened. Uh, you see the impact on their parents, for example. If the, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think going through this program, um, if the crime is serious enough, as opposed to going through this program, as opposed to going through a court system, there's a lot more positive stuff than that going through restorative justice is a good thing. Yes. Yeah, it is. And it's it's a an opportunity for the youth to be step out of the criminal justice system and work more in a community-based program, right? So Lutheran Community Services and Services is a nonprofit and then we work with 
a set of volunteers who are community members. So they're really getting an opportunity to talk about what happened, not to a juvenile court counselor, not to a judge, but to the people who were really impacted and community members who care. Yeah, how, how does the community get involved in this? So we have, um, we do a 40-hour, uh, well, first it starts with me trying to do outreach. <laughs> and, um, Sounds like you do a lot by yourself, are you? <laughs> I, I do a lot by myself, I do, yeah. It's just me and my volunteers. Um, so outreach, uh, there's an application process and then a 40-hour week training. And then um, new facilitators have a chance to observe cases and then they work with senior facilitators um, on these teams, we always work in teams um, to build out their skills and kind of learn as you go. Right now, we're not doing another training because of the COVID. It's um, we're working on trying to figure out how we can do a remote training, but uh, it's not on the calendar yet. So hopefully soon. Yeah. Outside of the forty-hour training process, um, what kind of uh, volunteer hours does it require? Or yeah. does, it, does it ask of your volunteers, I guess? There's not a minimum ask except to um, to try and participate when you can at least once a year. So, And then we do ongoing continuing education so that people who aren't getting on cases, if a long time goes between cases, they aren't their skills are staying up and running. Um, I think each case can accumulate anywhere from... 10 to 20 hours, and I would say most facilitators are doing one or two cases a year. So it's not a huge time commitment, um, but I think people are pretty satisfied with the amount of time they're getting to work. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool thing to volunteer. And tell me about your volunteers. Are, are there particular skills that they should have or, or what? We really encourage as much diversity as we can, and life skills are just as valuable as you know, higher education skills. So there's no minimum requirement in that regard. Um, in fact, we do a background check, but background checks can always be negotiated. Um, it does, like, for example, I would love to see someday youth who are involved in the criminal justice system go through the training and become facilitators themselves because they have real firsthand experience. Um, but they come from all walks of life. I would say the things that are really in common from them is that they care, right? They care about social justice and equity and interrupting systems like the school-to-prison pipeline and supporting youth and help being a part of repairing harm. We're talking today with Morgan Moore, restorative justice practitioner and restorative dialogue coordinator at Lutheran Community Services Northwest. Morgan, how did you get in this line of work? I discovered restorative justice when I was working on my master's degree at Portland State University in conflict resolution. At the time in the criminal justice program, there was a restorative justice course that I found and, and took and absolutely fell in love. And our program had um, a practicum requirement as well. And so I reached out to the Clackamas County Juvenile Department ages ago and mentored under their former um, dialogue coordinator. Uh, and so I've been doing it since 2006. And you're getting yeah. complete satisfaction out of it. That's awesome. I, yeah, I, 
it's very fulfilling work to me. And I continue to be a volunteer as well. And I think it's really valuable. And it sounds like this is really a lot of face-to-face work, right? Like you're, you're generally you're meeting in a, in a room, I'm assuming, a conference room or something like that? Yeah, yeah. That's the way we like to do it. <laughs> but now we are, I was going to say waist deep in a pandemic, but we're way beyond waist deep in a pandemic. Yeah. How, how has yeah. the pandemic affected your work? Well, that we're still kind of getting back up and running. It, certainly the programs were sort of side-railed for a little while, um, so we're learning as we go. But I've been using a lot of phone conferencing calls, um, trying to do Google Meets or Zoom when we can, the, um, and even a little bit more through email as far as sharing documents and stuff like that. Uh, it's It's going well. I would say one positive about it, is that it's easier to access people. These processes often involve a lot of people, and that can be really challenging to schedule. Yeah. And so it's sometimes easier, sometimes easier when people don't have to leave their home. So the participation rate has been very good. Um, the juvenile department is upping their referrals right now because they're trying to keep kids out of the courtroom because of the pandemic as well. And so uh, I think it's really opening a lot of opportunities to grow the program. There are a little bit of challenges. Um, You know, not everybody has access to the same technology. So you want to be, we have to be really careful to make sure that we're doing the best we can to provide equal services to everybody. Have you noticed any, I was, I was hearing an article the other day about, um, Summer in the summer, crime tends to tends to go up, and they were saying that during the pandemic, it's also gone up. Have you have you noticed crime going up in our area? I haven't noticed it going up in my role as the program coordinator specifically, but I certainly see a lot of crime happening in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I I don't know the answer to that question honestly okay. um, regarding my program. Well, let's then talk about, you know, the, with the the uh, racial equality movements that are happening. You know, it's mm-hmm. Portland is kind of a hot spot for that right now. Um, and the talk of defunding the police. Tell me how mm-hmm. you're, you're uh, are affected, how you are affected by that. Yeah. I think one of the things that's always challenging in my role here with the Restorative Dialogue Program is we get a lot of referrals for youth of color, which is on the one hand is positive because they're being offered um, restorative options. But the fact is that they're still disproportionately being detained in the first place. And so that's a system that needs to be broken down and will be hard work and take a long time. So for me right now, I'm really trying to do what I can, right? And I think the thing I can really do is try and um, diversify my volunteer pool as well. I think it's unfortunate that the the fact that we are set up for systemic racism makes it so that people who have the time and space and money to do a 40-hour week, 40-hour training and work as a volunteer are predominantly white. And so my, it's my responsibility to get out and make connections with the people in communities of color and find ways 
to make this work accessible to them as well, um, and perhaps doing more remote, using more remote t tools will help with that. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's what I'd like to do for my program specifically right now. Awesome. You're doing incredible work. This is super interesting. Thank you. The last couple Thanks. of minutes we have here, let's talk about how uh, if somebody listening wants to volunteer and get involved with your organization, how can they do that in the best way to find that information? Yeah, thank you. So you could email me um, at mmoore at lcsnw.org or Two organizations that are really just chock full of information are the Restorative Justice Coalition of Oregon and the Northwest Justice Forum. Those both are statewide entities that really work to network people doing this work all over the, all over the Pacific Northwest, actually. And also Multnomah County offers a one-day restorative justice training. I'm not sure when those will be back up and running again or if they're doing them remote, but you could find information about that on the um, on the website for Multnomah County. And you said it, your restorative dialogue program is happening here locally and, and you're in Portland, is that right? Yep. Okay. Because yep. last time I talked to uh, Lutheran Community Services, it was this that program is based in Vancouver. So Right, right. Um, but restorative justice is available throughout the Pacific Northwest and especially in the state of Oregon and Washington. Is that correct? It's it's available all over. Um, I would say probably, you know, in very, to varying degrees, but certainly Oregon and Washington both have solid programs. Cool. Well, this has yeah. been super interesting and eye-opening. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. We've been talking today with Morgan Moore, Restorative Justice Practitioner and Restorative Dialogue Coordinator at Lutheran Community Services Northwest. Let's Talk Portland is an Intercom Radio Portland public affairs program. 